we're going to be uh, looking at the, doing, uh, Debbie will be leading us in scripture reading. Um, but we're kind of starting a new section in Isaiah, Isaiah 56 to 66. And I want to just kind of clarify why we're actually looking at two passages this morning. So uh, let me quick jump through the song and get to this illustration. And uh, you will see it probably a few times because, hey, I mean, that's that's genius art that I've made here. But what I'm wanting to help us understand is actually there's a structure to 56 to 66 that in some ways is almost like a mountain structure. Like, you know, sometimes Hebrew scholars will talk about a chiasm. And what I mean by that is we're going to start and we see this today with this theme of the joy of worship. And then later on, it moves to kind of this problem of false worship of God's people. And then they move to a place of confession, a plea for help. And then you see in 59, God stepping in, and it leads us to kind of the high point of the whole section where we see the beautiful city and its king. But then after we get to the apex, we go back to the very same themes in reverse order. So once again, we see how God stepped in. We see a further acknowledgement of need. We see a further description of false worship. And then at the very conclusion, we come back to the theme with which we began, the joy of worship. And so uh, rather than spending uh, what, nine weeks looking at this, we're actually going to group uh, those two passages together. So we'll be looking at 56A and 66B this morning. Um, so now we're going to be having um, the scripture reading. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And, not, and let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. For I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and shall be and shall see my glory and i will set a sign among them and from them i will send survivors to the nations to tarshish pool and lud who draw the bow to tubal and javan to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, 
and they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers and all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. Okay, let's um, pray as we begin our time looking more carefully at this passage. Father, we have even uh, recently been reflecting how at the very heart of what it means uh, to know you and worship you is to be those who listen. And so we ask, Lord, for the supernatural work of your spirit to enable us to listen to you, because in your word is life and it renews us. And please help me to speak faithfully that we would be brought near to you in the joy of worshiping. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing right where we left off the last few weeks, um, and that is around this theme of joy. Uh, talking again about a joy not that cancels out our suffering, but in some ways is a counterbalance to our suffering. As I put it at one time, it's kind of the nevertheless. Yes, these things are hard, but we have a gift that has been given to us from God that is this gift of joy, even in the face of suffering. This morning, I really want to just focus around two themes that I think we see in both of our passages that are very central to both of those passages that were just read. And that is that the gift of joy that God gives us is the gift of worshiping him. That joy is found in worshiping him. And that secondly, this joy in worshiping him is a gift from God. So first, uh, I say that the, the gift that we're given of joy is the joy of worshiping him. Why do I say this? Well, if you don't have the passage in front of you right now, if you can, I'll, you know, that would be helpful. Um, and so in, in, fa- in 56, this is coming off, remember, we've just seen in 53 through 55, this declaration of what God has done through Christ Jesus, the suffering servant. And what you have in 56 is this promise, soon my salvation will come. That's in verse 1. And as you continue through the verses, he defines in greater detail what that salvation looks like. Until we get to verse 7, where it says, These, that is, these people, I will bring to my holy mountain. A holy mountain is, in some ways, a metaphor for the presence of God. He's bringing them to himself. And notice what it says after that. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful. Here it is again. This is the salvation that God promises. He is going to make people joyful. Now, how? How is he going to do that? It says, make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Do you see that? that I will make them joyful by bringing them to me in worship. Then if we look at the second passage in 66, we see these, this is the very final chapter of Isaiah, and it is the final depiction of the great salvation that God is going to bring. And, and what do we see? We see God saying that he's going to gather people from all across the world. And when he brings them, it says he will even make some of them Levites and priests. In other words, he's going to make them worship leaders. And what does it say in the final verse? From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. This promise of salvation, this promise of joy, is a promise of people worshiping God. The joy that we've been talking about over these last few weeks is the joy that is found in worshiping God. Now, having just said that, I'd be interested, you know, like, I want to invite you to do a quick gut check. How do you feel when you hear that? That the joy that is this gift is the joy of worshiping God. When I was a kid, I think it was probably about four or five, I remember one time, it was just close to Christmas. And on the Christmas tree, there were all these presents. And one of them was from my grandparents. And it was an odd size. And I was very curious about it. And so I remember on Christmas morning, grabbing that present and ripping it and opening it up and seeing it was underwear. Like, what kind of a present is underwear? And I wonder if, if that's a little bit how maybe some of us are responding. God wants to give you a gift of joy, he says. And we say, great. And then God says, and that joy is found in worshiping me. And we go, huh. While we're talking about uh, me uh, in my childhood, right around that age, I remember I used to be afraid of heaven. I mean, don't get me wrong, I was even more afraid of hell, but but heaven kind of freaked me out because I was told that heaven is about worship. And when I thought worship, I thought of, you know, like a church service. And honestly, I had the hardest time making it through like an hour-long church service. So the idea of one that lasts, you know, for eternity was kind of frightening to me. And the problem was I didn't really understand what was meant by worship. And I wonder if that's the case for many of us. That, that when we see these images of, of prayer, of temple, of sacrifice, if we think that, that worship is just holy things, the things that we might do on Sunday morning, not realizing that these are images that are meant to stand for something way bigger. So in the New Testament, when we're talk, told about worship, we're told to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, day in, day night. It's an all-of-life activity. And in fact, that's how worship works. Worship is something that everybody does, and it's something that everybody does all the time. We just oftentimes don't realize we're worshiping, and we oftentimes aren't very good or, or very productive at worshiping. The, the word worship is, in English, derived from two words that you can hear, worth-ship. And that's kind of actually a helpful way of thinking of it. That is, what is it that we ascribe worth to? What do we value? What are we willing to give our time and energy, even to the point of exhaustion, for? What 
motivates you more than anything else. That's what you ascribe worth to. That is what you worship. So if you're trying to think through, what is it that I worship? You might ask, what is it that gets me out of bed in the morning? And what is it that keeps me up at night? What is it that my mind will wander and think about when I have a moment where I'm daydreaming? What is it that I find myself when I'm just unusually angry or unusually anxious? What is it that's being threatened? If, if you can name that, then that's what you worship. Now, we wouldn't normally call it worship. It's not a conscious thing. It's not like we've decided, you know what, today I'm going to worship entertainment. No, it's, it's a choice that we make almost pre-consciously. It just feels like life. But when we step back, we can see there are certain things that matter most to us, and that is our worship. And the problem is, oftentimes, our worship is not, it's just not good. Um, so there's this writer, David Foster Wallace, um, we're in the time where normally we'd be having all these graduation speeches, and sadly, of course, that's not happening. But one of the most famous ones was written by, uh, was, was done by David Foster Wallace, who himself wasn't a Christian. But interestingly enough, in this commencement address, he speaks about worship. And not only does he say that, the same thing I just said, that we're always worshiping, he, he says that oftentimes the worship that we are doing is self-destructive. He says, what we choose to worship will often eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, if you think about it, this isn't him observing anything that hasn't been observed before. In fact, this is the very thing that we saw last week. Do you remember when God says, why do you labor for that which is not food? Why do you give yourself to that which does not satisfy? He is saying, why do you give yourself in worship to that which ultimately empties you? Because that's what it is. Anything other than God that we worship will, as Wallace says, eat us alive. Now, we don't feel it. We don't feel it in the moment. In fact, probably even right now, if you've been honest and you've recognized certain things that drive you, and I'm saying that will empty you, it's probably hard for you to actually buy what I'm saying, to buy what Scripture is saying. Because the thing is, those things that drive us are usually or almost always good. I mean, wealth, which is easy for us to mock, what is wealth but the ability to ascertain, to, to acquire the good things of this world, to enjoy beauty? That's good. When we talk about, you know, he talks about worshiping being attractive, but why do we want to be attractive? We want to be connected to other people and experience love. That's good. When, when people really are wanting to be smart, it's because we want to attain an understanding and knowledge. 
again, these things are good. And so it's hard to see in the process of going after them that these will ultimately hurt us until we finally get there, until we somehow acquire what we were seeking, and then we find ourselves feeling a bit empty. And that's because what we don't realize is these good things were never meant as the destination. They were meant as an invitation. They were never meant as the end goal. They were meant by God as something that was meant to lift us up to see him, to, to look to him, to turn to him in worship. We talked about beauty. C.S. Lewis has this great quote about beauty. Uh, he says, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else, which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. He's saying even beauty is meant to draw our gaze beyond it to the source. When we desire the love of others, that is good. And when we enjoy it, that is good. But it is, it is something deeper that we're longing for, to know that the one who made us smiles upon us and loves us. When we are, are wanting power and control, that desire will ultimately only be satisfied not in us controlling things, because we can't, but knowing the one who is and knowing that we can trust him. Every, everything that we strive for that is good is, is not meant to be the end point, but is meant to draw us further towards the God who is worth our worship. And, and to be clear again, what, what I'm saying is not that the end goal is that we just are all going to be in one massive church service of praying and praising, as if once we know God, everything else disappears. What I'm talking about when I'm talking about this worship is about a relationship. It is about knowing and delighting in God in a way that doesn't actually remove us from the good things of this world. I know there's that song, turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. And I understand what it's trying to say, but I want to suggest that's actually not a good way of seeing it. It's as we turn our eyes upon Christ, as we, as we worship the true God, everything else in this world becomes actually more delightful. Because now they have the right place. Now they don't have the pressure of completely satisfying us. And now they actually have something that's even more beautiful about them. I have a, a blue sweater that I wear a lot. It's my favorite sweater. And it's, it's a good sweater in and of itself. I like it. But, you know, the reason, one of the reasons I like it so much is because Jennifer, my wife, gave it to me. And, and in some ways, it is an ongoing reminder of our relationship. And the reality is that every good thing that we enjoy, every beautiful moment in creation, every delight that we experience from love of others, we are meant to delight in. And as we delight in, we are also meant to realize this is a gift from the God who loves us, leading us into worship towards him. That is, that is the worship that gives us joy.
And until we are connected in that direction, you will never find life works. There will be this ongoing, perhaps sometimes more pronounced than others, sense that there's something we're missing, something that we're forgetting. Perhaps we'll feel it at times as this sense of just emptiness, boredom, lack of motivation. What we are sensing is the fact that everything other than God does not satisfy because it wasn't meant to. But there is joy, real joy, as we worship the one who made us. And so that's where our passage begins, by God saying, I want to give you the gift of joy. I am going to give you this gift of worshiping me, because joy is found in worshiping God. But that already, what I just said, leads us to the second theme that we see in both of our passages, that this joy of worshiping God is a gift. So there are two sets of people that our passage kind of speaks of, and, and both of them, we could say, have significant obstacles in being able to connect to God and worship him. So in, in 56, we see what two groups of people, foreigners and eunuchs, that is the sexually disfigured, sexually altered. And these are people who, by a number of standards, would have been disqualified from drawing near to God. So there is, in uh, a museum in Jerusalem, there's this big uh, limestone block. Um, and what makes it just such an important piece is it's actually a piece left over from the temple itself, the very temple that Jesus would have walked through. And on this block, there's an inscription, and here's where it says, no foreigner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put blame for the death which shall ensue. If you are a foreigner, or similarly, this would apply to eunuchs, you cannot come any further. You are disqualified. That's the group of people that God is speaking to. But, but notice, these people are not just people who are disqualified. They're also people who desire God. So, who is the foreigner that we're talking about here? The foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord. And, and who is the eunuch? It's the eunuch who keeps the Sabbath. The, the Sabbath was a practice that God gave that symbolized trust. People were meant to rest from their labors and wait on God. Those who keep the Sabbath are those who want God, who are seeking God. So the people that God is speaking to here are those who are disqualified from drawing near to God, but who want God. And here's what God says. In my day of salvation, I will bring you in. I will, it says, give you a name greater than sons and daughters. You will be welcomed as my family members. God says, though there be obstacles, I will overcome them. And draw you to myself. That's the first thing that we see in, in chapter 56. 66, you could say the obstacle of anything is even greater than in 56. In 56, these were outsiders who wanted God. In 66, the group of people who are being described is outsiders who are so far removed, they are in nations, they're in Turkey, they're in Africa, and they have not even heard of God. They've not even come close to moving towards God. They're 
pagans. And yet God says, I'm going to overcome that obstacle as well. I'm going to have this sign be performed. It says in, you know, in verse 19, it says, and I will set a sign among them, which is almost certainly he's talking about the cross here, about Christ's death and resurrection. And then I will send survivors, that is people who belong to me, to the nations to gather people from across the world. And you have this, this beautiful image of people coming back. Do you notice this list? It's on chariots and litters and mules, dromedaries, and camels. You've got Jews coming back with people from Turkey. You have, imagine, you know, on this chariot, there's this African driving a chariot, and right next to him is a Jew, and he is leading them back to the mountain. He is leading them to the presence of God so that they might worship him. And God's saying, that's what I will do. I am going to overcome even this distance to bring these people to me that they might experience the joy of worshiping. And here's, here's the point. It's simple, but it's important. It's not these people who are able to draw themselves to God or who even have to make themselves qualified to come to God. God is the one who comes and gathers and welcomes people into his home. We have a God who is remarkably hospitable, who says, come in. In fact, not only does he say, come in to those who are the outcasts, he actually sends people out to gather people home. This, this joy of worship is a gift. Now, here's why it's important. In almost every other way, Whatever we pursue in worship, remember worship, we don't even have to think of it as worship. It's just whatever we give most meaning to, whatever we pursue in worship is something we strive for. It's something we have to achieve. If we want to be liked, we feel like we have to make ourselves likable. If we want success, we have to work and work and work to get to whatever that is. In the religious realm, we see this too. In in Buddhism, to achieve nirvana, you have to go through a lifelong or sometimes even a many lifelong process of kind of slowly being made right before you can actually be the one that you are seeking to be. It even sometimes is, is misunderstood in the church. So sometimes when we talk about worship on Sundays, there can be a sense, I, was, I remember a person saying this, that he used to get exhausted by Sunday morning because he felt like he had to whip up his emotion to get himself to just the right place for what God was worthy of so that he could worship him. All of this has this idea of us having to get there, to finally be able to worship the way we were meant to. And God says, no, I've already gotten there for you. I've, I've come to you. I, I've come, and I'm just saying, come on in. Come, come eat, come drink. It doesn't even cost money because I've already paid for it. I am welcoming you in that you might have the joy of knowing me and worshiping me. It's a gift. Now, I would love to just kind of sit on that for a moment because I think it is so important to just realize you don't have to do anything. God just says, come in. But I actually want us to consider the fact that this, what we have here, these prophecies, they're not just words that we have sometime in ancient history. This is a promise that we actually see shaping the course of human history from, from this moment forward. So I'd like to actually have us move forward in our, our thinking to um, a time in the New Testament. It is 
uh, shortly after Jesus has ascended, we have the book of Acts, which describes all that God did after Christ returned to him. And there's this really unusual picture. We've talked about it before in church, but it's so relevant. I want to bring it up again, where you have this man um, on a chariot. He's an African man, Ethiopian, on a chariot leaving Jerusalem. And he's a eunuch. He's sexually disfigured. Uh, but not only that, he is an incredibly powerful man. We're told that he is the queen of Ethiopia, is like right-hand man, kind of like the secretary of treasury. He is powerful, wealthy, successful, and yet he is pretty obviously dissatisfied because he has made a more than month-long pilgrimage, more than a thousand miles just to come to Jerusalem, just to to draw near to God. And yet we know when he actually comes to the temple what he would have found. He would have found this sign on the temple wall saying, you can't come any further. And so when Acts describes him, we see him on his way back. And you can only imagine how discouraged he might have felt to feel so disqualified because, of course, he was both a eunuch and a foreigner. And yet we know what Isaiah 56 promises. Let not the eunuch say, I'm a dry tree. Let not the foreigner say, I'm cut off. God says, because I will welcome you. And so what does this passage tell us? It says that God takes one of his great preachers, Philip, and he sends him. He says, there's this man on a chariot. I want you to catch up with him and speak to him. And so the Ethiopian, it says he is reading a scroll. And when you know it, the scroll that he's reading is Isaiah, the, the very book that we have been studying. He has it open. And he is reading you know, a verse that, that we're probably fairly familiar with. It's, it's from um, Isaiah 53. Do you, do you remember? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. It's a passage speaking of Jesus dying for us. And, and as he's reading out loud, there's just this, I think it's got to be this humorous moment. At least it is to me. So he's reading out loud and he's pondering it. And it's kind of like, as he just looks to the side to think about it more, he notices there's this guy who's just kind of running next to him and saying, hey, I heard you were reading Isaiah 53. Do you, do you need someone to help you understand it? And, and the Ethiopian thinks for a moment and says, well, yeah. And so Philip comes and, and joins him in the chariot. And just think about what that's saying for a moment, that you have, in this moment, a Jew sitting in a chariot with an African as the Jew is leading him back to God. This is Isaiah 66 in this moment. And so what does Philip do? He, he explains how Jesus, that God sent Jesus to break down all of the barriers between humanity and God, to deal with sin, with guilt, with everything that stands in the way, because God wants to bring his people home to him. And as the Ethiopian is listening, it's almost like he understands the significance of this before even Philip does, because he kind of interrupts Philip, and he says, look, there's some water right there. Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? Now, that's actually an extraordinarily vulnerable question that he's asking. Because baptism 
is the sign of welcome, of incorporating those who are baptized. The sign is saying that you belong and are part of the family of God. And, and the Ethiopian says, I know I'm a eunuch and I know I'm a foreigner. Does that disqualify me or could it be that God actually wants me? Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? And the answer, of course, is no. And so we have this beautiful scene of this fiery Jewish preacher and this likely effeminate, powerful black man walking down together into the water and he being baptized and brought up, and then these two people embracing now as brothers, both of whom are children of God. And the very last thing we see about the Ethiopian, we're told that as he continues on his journey, he goes on his journey rejoicing. He has the joy of knowing that he is able to worship the true God because God has welcomed him in and has given him this gift of knowing him. And I wonder, at the end of that day, if Philip kind of, as he was going to bed, thought about it and said, I, I wonder if he realized that this was the very first moment and something really big that he was seeing the very first moment of God fulfilling these promises in Isaiah 56 and 66. One of many upon many upon many thousands and millions and billions of times this promise kept on being fulfilled. Because if you think about it, it's, it's so unlikely that this news of a crucified king would somehow have gotten outside of Jerusalem and spread. And it seems so unlikely that it would have made it more than just a generation. And yet it did as one person to another person to another person told the news of Christ. And in each moment, what was happening is not just people speaking, but God was gathering his people and saying, come in, welcome. And in fact, that news has made it all the way here right now, even as, even as we're hearing, even as we're doing this very human activity of talking and listening, I, I hope you realize that God actually right now is, is speaking to all of us. And he's saying, yes, this is for you too. I mean, maybe some of you this morning are even asking the question, is there anything that prevents me? I know myself. I know things that I feel like should disqualify. And God is saying, nothing. Nothing disqualifies you because I've dealt with it in Christ. Welcome Come in and eat and drink. If we want to understand human history, that's what it's about. And if we want to understand joy, this is what it's about. The joy we have been given is the joy of knowing our God and being able to worship him because that was what we were made to do. And so I'd like to give us just a moment in response. And maybe part of the way that we want to pray is to acknowledge where our heart has been oriented towards the wrong kinds of worship, where we find ourselves dissatisfied. And instead, in repentance, turning to the one who is worthy of our worship, the only one who can give us joy. So let's spend a couple minutes in silent prayer, and then I will lead us in a couple minutes.